Welcome to Risk Sleep Repeat, a podcast that features influential guest speakers from the world of fire, health and safety. We're going to focus on trust-based safety, owning and embracing risk and the importance of people over paperwork. Hosted by me, Adam Clark, Managing Director and Mike Stevens, CEO of Praxis 42. If you're a fire, health and safety professional, join us for inspirational conversations about the future of our industry. Dawn Whittaker is the Chief Fire Officer for the East Sussex Fire and Rescue Service. With experience in the private, public and voluntary community sectors, Dawn's mantra is to improve the performance of organisations through people and well-managed change. Dawn has roles with the National Chief Fire Officers Association, centred on leadership development and enhancing prevention and community safety. Okay, well, um, thank you for joining me today, Dawn. Your career has taken you from the private retail sector into local authority with county councils before going into the fire and rescue service and the National Fire Chiefs Council. Can you give me an overview of how you've shaped your career and when did you know that an opportunity was right for you or not as the case may be? So wouldn't it be great if I could just sit here and say it was all planned out? I don't think that'd be entirely honest. (laughs) So... You know, okay, so... I don't think I believe um, you. It's a combination of, I guess, really getting to know yourself and understanding what's your thing, what motivates you, and also a little bit of bravery in leadership because you can become very comfortable, I guess, when you're working for a good organisation, you've got a good job, it can be tempting to just stay there. And certainly, you know, after I graduated, I went to work for John Lewis's partnership and they're a great company. They train their staff well, they care about their customers. Um, there were some strong values in the organisation which which I could relate to. But I think it would be fair to say I always felt there was something missing and um, and I kind of made up for that by doing stuff outside of work. So I did a lot of voluntary work. I also applied for the Golden Jubilee Trust. You remember that Jubilee with John Lewis's and they gave you time out of work to go and do something for society or your community. And I took that up and I went to uh, to do a quality assurance piece for a, a local charity uh, and help them with sort of attain a quality matrix standard and, and then went on to work with that charity and I eventually became chair on the board of trustees. So what was missing for me was really about that community impact piece. I, I knew I was working for a good organisation. I knew they were training me well. I knew we were, you know, serving the public well. But there were lots of things going on, you know, out there societally. But uh, I, I thought I really wasn't contributing adequately to that. So, yeah, I went to work for a local authority, as you quite rightly say, spent a bit of time in a county council. I found that both fascinating and challenging all at once. It was like, you know, turning a tanker. And I was also shocked by, and comparing it to John Lewis's, the, the difference in democracy. So um, I had an opportunity to take up a six-month secondment into the Fire and Rescue Service, into Northamptonshire Fire and Rescue Service. Uh, that was 17 years ago. I loved fire. And, and the rest, as they say, is history? Yeah, it's, it flicked some switches for me. Were you, were you hesitant when that opportunity came up? Absolutely. Um, for, for some reasons that I can think about now and some that I could claim that I knew about then, but actually they're retrospective reflections. Um, culturally, you know, going into the fire service uh, back in 2004 as a woman and as a direct entry was quite a challenge. Uh, I didn't realise how much of a challenge it, it was going to be, but there we go. I've obviously survived it. But I also knew that, you know, at that stage of life, 
going back in and I was in my 40s, going back in and having to prove myself again was going to be hard work and, and was going to be physically and, and, and psychologically demanding, really. But um, but I, I've never been one to shy away from a challenge. No. And um, um, going into that, in that time of your life, knowing that that was going to be a, a challenge, what was what was really your driving force behind, um, you know, because l- l- like you said, you could have just, you're in a good, good organization, you know what it looks like to then completely go into a different, into a different direction. What was, what was driving you to want to do that? Yeah. So I think the initial driver was wanting to get back in front of the sharp end. I re- the thing I really enjoyed with John Lewis was the interaction with people, uh, frontline serving people, putting things right for people. Um, one of the things I had to do in my career when I was with John Lewis is I was um, working in a in children wares and babies and it was when the cot death crisis started you remember mm-hmm. um, um so you know we had on that monday morning hundreds of really worried pregnant women families queuing up outside john lewis's concerned about you know mattresses and all that sort of thing um and having to deal with that think on your feet do your research reassure people you know it was hard work and and, and actually quite wearing but you know, you knew you were helping people. And and I sort of saw some of that in my short spell in Secondment Into Fire. I actually went in to help them with the performance management stuff because that was my kind of professional area of expertise, change management and performance management. Um, so I went in to help them with that, but I really liked what I saw. I liked the ethos. I liked the fact that the, the fire is solution orientated. It wants to fix things and it wants to make it better for people. So those were my drivers, I guess, at that time. And, um, and and for your own kind of inner determination, your own you know, tenacity, um, how has that kind of helped you succeed and kind of make you, you know, or get the outcome that you, you wanted? And equally, how has it made you feel if you haven't got the outcome you wanted? Yeah, so tenacity is really important, but blind tenacity is stupid. So, yes, I've absolutely had to draw on my personal resilience a number of times in 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 my career and, and well in my personal life as well but I think never be you know ho- hosted by hoisted by your own petard that's the correct phrase isn't it um just because you know you know that you have got a sort of a fairly high level of of personal resilience and that you can be tenacious sometimes you need to go more carefully and you need to be more considered uh, and you certainly need to do your research so I think it's about knowing when to switch it on uh, and knowing when um, you need it to help you get through something that you have got to face, but that is really challenging. Yes, I can very much resonate with with that. And I, I kind of like to think it's very difficult when we when we start talking about emotional intelligence and situational emotional intelligence. You know, there are one size doesn't fit all when you're you know, when you're dealing with a situation, it's very much about understanding the, you know, the people, the politics, the environment, and actually for somebody to be able to put all of that together and, and go with an approach that would fit. That's a difficult skill set to utilise effectively. It, it is. And I think one of the things that I have that has helped me with that, not only was, you know, a little bit about my background, having been brought up on a small f- sort of farm in Wales, you had to get on and do things. You, you had to face the bad weather. You had to face, you know, uh, livestock dying and all those. Sort of things. You just have to get on with it. Um, so there's a pragmatism, I think, that's inbuilt there. But I think it's also, you know, as you allude to in terms of that emotional intelligence piece, it's knowing when you lead from the front and you push and you know when to step back and just help and support uh, and let your colleagues, you know, take it forward 
and and you're just there as a you know, as a, as a guiding principle, as it were. Yes, yes, it's interesting, and um, and I and I guess that the, the challenge that you know I certainly find at times, and I'm sure you have, is you know if you've, I think first of all I think reflection is incredibly important, and I don't think we, I don't think we cover that enough with our you know with our colleagues that, that you know you really need to think about how situations situations went but also um i find that trying to we, we give people skills to do the jobs and at times then people get opportunities to take management roles on but be able to get them to think with emotional intelligence like we described to actually train someone to be able to be comfortable in in doing that uh, it's very difficult yes it is but i think there are things that that are available if you want to use them for a start i'm a great believer in reading read around a subject uh, rather than just have an opinion um, so you see both sides of the argument that helps you to to achieve balance and and I think the other thing is you know find yourself a darn good mentor somebody that you can see that's good at it that uses those skill sets because it will although you have to both invest in that it allows you to have those conversations you know it allows you to talk about you know when you faced that what did you do or or what can you reflect back on now that you did that helped you through it so I think you know be well read research both sides of an argument find yourself a good mentor it helps you achieve balance and was there somebody in particular throughout your career that you think particularly influenced the way that you formed your own style I think there have probably been a number to be honest with you I, I wouldn't say there was a momentary uh, of, of a there wasn't an epiphany as it were um, sure. but I've I have had I'm a good networker which I think is is, is something that everybody should develop as a skill set. But I am also really interested in people. So when I see really strong leadership, I'm I'm likely to go and find out about that person and try and make contact and just have a conversation with them. I'm nosy. I think that's actually probably the truth. I'm nosy. I prefer the word curious. curious. I'm very curious. curious. Yes, about things. Curious about people, curious about, you know, styles. Um that that said, you know, I did work with some really good leaders in, in John Lewis's, really good leaders. And I've worked with some fantastic people in the voluntary sector and, of course, since in, in fire. And, you know, you haven't always got to look for those moments of great leadership at, at the senior people. Sometimes they're the person that's quietly working away, chipping away at something that's really, really gnarly, but getting through it um, and spotting those people and, and just having a chat with them can be really enlightening oh yeah absolutely and and you know kind of I think it's that like I say recognizing and, and nurturing and you know even it's just that person being acknowledged when they may not you know sometimes we we all can suffer from you know imposter syndrome and am I, am I actually doing you know am I doing this well am I am, am I succeeding and just just seeing it and acknowledging it can really help somebody develop and you know people are at the heart of whatever business whatever sector you know people people are everything and being able to get the best out of people will normally mean you've got a really effective organization but equally on the flip side of that you know if you're not getting the best out of people it can be you know it can turn into a toxic uh, a toxic environment just as just as quickly and you know it's a it's a very delicate balance at times and and sometimes when, you know, when we're talking about leadership it can be a a simple change in leadership which which can then flip it one way or the other incredibly incredibly quickly so what would you say then you know what are the are kind of the, the common traits in good leadership characteristics oh gosh there's lots of books and lots of academic research on this that you know so, so I can only speak from personal experience so for me number one probably is authenticity be yourself be true 
don't try and pretend to be something that you're not. And that's both stylistically, but also in skill sets. Surround yourself. If you are a, okay, leaders at all levels, but if, if you're a senior leader in an organisation, make sure you've got a good diverse team around you. Because you don't want lots of, you know, mini-me's or, you know, groupthink or silotic approach. You have difference around you because that will help. But be authentic. So uh, balance. We talked about it a moment ago. Lead from the front when it's needed and lead from the back when, you know, when it's when it's appropriate. I think the other thing is be visible. And that's that's sometimes difficult, particularly if you're, you know, you're a senior manager in a large organisation or, you know, as as I am in a 24-7 organisation, because it it would absorb my whole diary for a month if I wanted to see all of our staff. But there's different ways of being visible, you know, use social media, record blogs. I do lots of video blogs for for fire or send out a message to your organisation. Just make sure people know that you're there and know what you you know you're trying to achieve and what you stand for I think is really important and and also be open to challenge be open to suggestion and be open to difference of opinion because you know I was having a conversation with somebody in my senior team yesterday and um, you know they were asking my opinion on something or the way we should move something and I said I haven't got the answers but I tell you what if the eight of us get in the room we'll bang through it and we'll come up with one because to take forward a change a difficult change in an organization to bring people with you you can't just sort of say this is what we're doing over the hill troops this is the way we're, we're it's just not going to work sure so no and it's it's, ch- it's when change management doesn't happen very effectively it's like oh it's like I was saying um oh by the way we're going to make a big change to something that's really important to you and um oh and that change starts tomorrow good luck if that's okay and uh, yeah, no, I haven't quite worked out what the detail is, but it's happening tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> really good. Yeah. So in summary, probably authentic, you know, use your whole team, be balanced, be visible and be prepared to, to change. Be prepared to admit when you've got it wrong as well, because I think some people's egos stop them doing that. Couldn't couldn't agree more. I think in, you know, in, in honesty and integrity, you know, at, at times I think people often look at leaders and think, put them on too high of a pedestal you know we're we're people who've who've gone on a journey and we are where we are but we're not we don't know everything we don't have all the have all the answers but we are normally the people who will say okay well we've got to do something here let's go with what we know is what we think is best at the time but you know we reserve the right that if it turns out that that's not the best thing that we're going to change it and that's okay but it it's better than doing nothing And, and and equally on the flip side of that i think so it's like how do we how do we encourage people to challenge because you know if you're when you're in large organizations and you've got you know sometimes huge hierarchies when you've got somebody getting towards the you know the bottom of or bottom of that structure and they're thinking well actually I've got, i think i've got a really good idea here but oh my god i can't can i can i go to somebody in that senior and say hey i th- I'm not sure if your idea is quite as good as it could be. Do you know what? It's funny. I mean, sort of in the fire service, you know, we're a uniformed, disciplined, hierarchical, constructual type organisation. And we need that on the incident ground because it's high risk, you know, dynamic. And there there has to be a very strong structure in terms of decision making, cascade and, and so on and so forth. But we also run a business. It's not a business. It's a service to the public. And and in our day jobs, we can afford to loosen that, loosen those constraints and be more conciliatory and be more engaged and, you know, be more, I suppose, 
methodical about the way we handle change. Um, so, you know, very often it's about helping our staff understand that, you know, when we're on the incident ground, this goes. But actually in the day job, you know, you can, we, we need you to step up. We don't just want you to obey orders like you do on the incident ground, it, you know, and it's that blend of, uh, I guess, of being, you know, both a service and being an emergency service that, that is quite unique. And it takes some people, you know, a while to get their heads around it. And what you articulated a few minutes ago, oh, I couldn't possibly speak to the chief about that. Yes, ma'am. All of that. I, I've seen plenty of that. But but encouragingly, in my own service, people do come and say, I've got something I want to talk to you about. Have we considered? Um, but it takes a while to, you know, to, to make sure. And, it take, and it's also a balance because there are times when, you know, actually a decision has been made and uh, and it's been made for the right reasons and, uh, and we need to move on and deliver it. Um, but, but then equally, I think, you know, back to your, your previous point, um, where we're talking about just how important leadership was, if you were the kind of person who um, you know, didn't want to engage with people and it's well no it's, it's it's my way or the highway then you're you're kind of setting the tone for especially newer people in, in into work setting the tone for that's that's what they will experience and you know I've, I've found throughout my and that's what they'll copy exactly you know, and we'll have yeah managers throughout the organization that will just be autocratic and that's absolutely not what we need no and I, I found I've, I've kind of shaped a lot of my leadership style around what I've been exposed to that I didn't like that I didn't want other people to get exposed to who were you know who are who work with me and so it's yeah it's, it's strange how just a you know a small number of people who are really in leadership roles can have such an influence on you know on people and where they you know where they go and, and how they feel you have to accept that as a senior leader you set the tone and setting the tone is almost as important as making the decision because it affects the culture of the organization exactly and you know when we, when we talk about culture um values behaviors and whether people you know whether people fit into that it's the heart of it's the heart of the organization and you know people coming in you know there's a bit of them having to adapt to to that culture you having to adapt to to them but very clear you know quite early on if if somebody's not fitting into that and they're not you know it's it's obviously it's part of leadership is to you know, have conversations with people about what you know what has been observed and where that's not not going. But you know, I think it's incredibly important to protect that culture and those you know those values that you that you have. Yeah, I, I, and I think striking the balance between that and and ensuring that you also encourage difference is really interesting, because there will be people that will come in with uh, and actually I welcome it with completely opposite perspectives on things. But you have got to create the culture that allows for a respectful discussion yes. about those differences rather than the, you know, your opinion's wrong, my opinion's right. And, you know, that sort of divisive sort of element of culture. So Agreed. Talk, we've talked quite a lot with, with other, other leaders about psychological safety and, and, you know, kind of culturing that environment where people are allowed to have opinions. Those opinions won't necessarily always be the same, but bringing those together in a positive way that's what gets us you know going down the right path but also it's also very difficult at times for people to be comfortable with being challenged and and you know it's almost seeing it's not a personal attack on you but what we're trying to do is to get to the right right place and like you say bringing in diversity and different ideas is what gets you what you need 
if you go through a little exercise with your management team, which is quite a simple exercise, but it can be quite valuable, sort of a, we're going to stop this and we're going to start this. And, and it can be things that you're doing or it can be behaviours in the organisation or it could be cultural statements. And we did one of those as I took over as, as chief down here. And I sat around with my team. I said, right, OK, what are we going to stop and what are we going to start? And top of the list was one that you and I have been talking about. We're going to stop being so emotional as an organisation, you know, getting hit up about stuff and going off on one because so-and-so doesn't disagree with so-and-so and whatever. And we're going to start becoming more emotionally intelligent as an organisation. And actually writing that down helped, I think, the leadership team to go, OK, that sounds logical. And then start the conversation about, well, how do we do that? Because if you don't have those conversations, you know, it's kind of going to happen by accident, take too long, or you're not going to be clear about what you need to achieve to make it happen. So, you know, simple exercise, stop, start. No, I love it. That's It's very simple, but also very focused on, on, on something that you, you know, again, and I suppose before we move on from from leadership, it's the other side of it is of just being consistent. You know, if you've got a you know leadership team and you want everybody to be you know trying to be consistent when they're when they're dealing with people, that's that's a very simple place. Of, we all know where we are now. This is what we're this is what we're not doing anymore. This is how we're going to try and go about it going forward. Mm. So so let's talk about some of the things that that you're really passionate about, Dawn. We've we've discussed previously um, about uh, a study that you were uh, working on, which was to do with. Uh, accidental dwelling fires something which has been a problem for quite a long time and I'm really interested to know what what made you go at it from a different angle when I came down to East Sussex uh, sort of that uh, forensic look at our performance and what we were doing and what our incident stats were telling us helped me take stock of what we needed to change and and that was across the board really not just in delivery to the public that was behind the scenes as as well and I might touch on the corporate health and safety side of things and well-being of the workforce but in terms of accidental dwelling fires what we'd got was kind of a static plateau of accidental dwelling fires that were occurring and and they were at quite a high level but of course an an accidental dwelling fire can be quite a small fire it might not even need intervention it's somebody that calls up and their toaster's on fire or whatever else but something's happened in the home it's an accident and so no huge damage to the property no no injury no life risk and so we tend to focus at the extremes of those sorts of things but I wanted to have a look at this because it was static effectively it meant that whatever we were doing with prevention or response wasn't changing this this level of of incidents we were attending so um, with the management team, we, we talked about how we were going to tackle that. And we set up an action learning set, a group of interested individuals who had relevant knowledge and experience to come together to sort of like a project, but not not as disciplined as a formal as a project, but an, uh, a group of people to workshop the issue. Look at what we'd done. Look at what had had impacts. Look at what hadn't and come out with some some suggestions about how to shift it and great groups of great people in it and they came out with the fact that once they did a deeper dive into the statistics that you know this we've got a very older population down here on the coast but it wasn't really that vulnerable group of people that were having these these instances there was lots about look we've run a campaign called look while you cook there was lots of cooking adfs so uh, there was lots of 
and actually the age profile was between 20 and 40 of the homeowners and the def- demographic of the homeowners when we went into the detail of where the properties were that were having these fires was also quite different. So what we decided to do was to do some behavioural change stuff with the public and take a different approach. I'm blessed with a good comms and marketing team here. Um, they wrote a convincing bid into the LGA, into the Local Government Association, to be part of the Behavioural Insights programme that ran. All credit to them. You know, they, they achieved it. We were the only fire and rescue service in the UK that, that um, got funding to take part in that program and we'd already done some really interesting behavioral insights work with road safety down here in Sussex so it kind of followed on and we set up a whole different approach lots of these incidents were occurring in Brighton so different marketing approach something called the Brighton tribe it getting people uh, members of the public who wouldn't really engage with fire hadn't got small children they weren't elderly you know there wasn't a vulnerability per se how do we get them to engage with us and talk about home safety so give away social media completely different approach all about behavioral shift behavioral influence and yeah so we we, we ran the project um, our ADFs on dropped the, the number of accidental dwelling fires dropped and um, brought us down to the lowest level ever achieved in East Sussex as a result of thinking through the problem, analysing the data, taking a different approach. And, and because we just had to acknowledge the fact that if we carried on doing what we'd already always done, we were not going to shift this thing. So I think what it did, apart from achieving the goal, was it helped colleagues think through different ways of doing stuff, different approaches and really appreciating that behavioural change and influencing change cannot be done with a hammer and a nail. No, really, really good point. And, and one of the things that you know, always resonates with me when I was looking through the, through the study about technology is moving at a pace that you know, it's just very difficult for us to, to, to keep up with. But obviously technology has changed the way we communicate. And I suppose I mean, some of the lessons that learned, learning coming out of this study was you know, using that te- using technology to be able to communicate differently to get your message heard. Um, yeah. And how how did you find, especially when you you, know, you said that the age group group that you were you were targeting there, what would kind of been of a more traditional approach to communication versus what you, you know, tried to do in in this particular study? Well, at times we don't target tight enough. You know, we don't do the analysis that's required to identify the the market or the the problem, and that probably comes from my commercial background, actually, you know, gnarly get in underneath and, and look at your stats and understand. Um, I mean, it, it's not as bland as, you know, identifying your target audience and then sorting out your marketing campaign for them. That's a little bit, you know, a little bit commercial. But the principles are the same. Oh, yeah. You've got a message. You want them to they want them to get the message and, and hear you. Yeah. To hear. So you've got to work out how they're going to listen to it. What's going to switch them on? Why would they want to engage with you? Because don't go out with the don't do this and you must fit a smoke detector and you must do this and, you know, fire kills. It's just not going to get into them. Those campaigns are fantastic and have, you know, brought about change and influence, but they are not right for that market and they're not right for that age profile. And, you know, people who don't don't consider themselves at risk are not going to listen to the, you know, safety and risk messaging. They're not. So you have to find a different way of motivating them. And has the has the learning from this study been applied elsewhere? Yes. So as I say, we've also used it with road safety and we're also using it into water safety. 
because again another area of passion Adam, don't, <laughs> get me, don't get me started on water safety um but the target audience that the people that are drowning in the uk in in numbers are men between the ages of 15 and 35 generally it's generalism but they are a high percentage and so you know how do you get to that audience how do you get to an audience who want to take risks who want to be sporty who want to be active who get adrenaline rushes out of stuff some of the stuff we don't want them to do who will dare each other particularly at a certain age who want to be seen to be um, brave and all those sorts of things you've got to find because telling them not to do it is not going to work we've used influence in there as as well behavioral insights into what is what provokes change and if you get time to have a look we used a group of students from from brighton uni and sussex college and we put together a load of tiktok videos do you know what they're really daft they're daft some of them but the followers astronomical yeah because we made it funny. Well, I think it's interesting in the, in, in the trends of technology. When you think about what was a very traditional, a very traditional course, you sat around, uh, sat in a room with a PowerPoint presentation or an overhead projector, and it's like we're going to talk to you about something for, for, for eight hours. And you look at the trend over time as technology has changed, and people want to consume information in a fraction of a second. You know, like, like I suppose why TikToks are so popular at the at the moment. You know, they are visual, and people have got the expect the attention span of about thirty to thirty seconds to a, to a minute, and you've got that amount of time to get the, the message across to them and grab their and grab their attention. And you know, it's it's really interesting, I suppose, from from an operational point of view. If you think about all of the hazards that the operational fire service can face, you know, that's that's vast, okay, and many situations that you will commonly face, but when you think about understanding your clients, your people, that's an ongoing, an ongoing process. And you think, you know, when I suppose when I think about when I was a, uh, in my early teens versus what an early teenager now is facing, it's, it, things have changed. How do you look at your your people risk? How do you un- how do you continue to understand about them and what you know again with with communication or with targeting? How is that? How do you keep up and how do you be effective and stay current? So it's a challenge, to be honest. And, you know, I'm a woman of a certain age, so I haven't got all the answers, frankly. Have a good comms and marketing team. Have a good research and analytical team behind you because they will provide you with the data and then and actually, and the creativity to find solutions, some which are beyond me to have worked out, quite frankly. But also talk to people, use partnership networks because other people will have thought of something that's working well. It might not be anything to do with emergency services, but if it's working well for them, chances are you can adapt and, and turn something, turn it to your advantage as well. And I certainly saw that, you know, in my time in, in John Lewis's with advertising, certainly. I won't go on about John Lewis's Christmas advert, but, you know, it gets followers. So uh, what is it that that's doing? It's tapping into a psyche. So you know, that's, that's the sort of thing I would suggest, you know, make sure, use your partnerships, you have good statisticians or, or business analysts around you and, and use good comms and marketing because they will come up with ideas and be creative to to help you and I think you've got to engage with people there's got to be a really strong engagement strategy so we're about to start and we've done different things in the past but our comms and marketing manager has come up with community cafes so um, we are about to start online community cafe sessions anybody can dial in they can ask us anything they like they can 
bring ideas, they can challenge performance, they can ask us about finance, they can ask us how to be a firefighter, whatever. But I'm hoping that they will provide another vehicle for conversation with our community. The community, they are your they are your clients, they're your customers, however you want to however you want to frame them. And whilst, you know, they if they've got the fire, they're going to expect that they're going to call you and you're going to you're going to turn up. But I suppose if you're not listening to what what do they what do they need from from you? And you know, things do move on, you know, do move on very very quickly. So, obviously, your I know one of your areas of interest is is drowning prevention, and you know we discussed we've discussed previously about that's been a long journey to get some traction going on that and especially when there are a large number of stakeholders that needed to get on on board so i'm really interested in knowing when you're when you're looking at tackling something of that size how do you even how do you even get that started and what what really again dri- drove you to to get that to get that going so i suppose if i was to characterize something i've been trying to influence for a very long time this would probably be one of them and uh, started way back when with a personal experience, actually, uh, when I was 16. But I won't bore you with that. And it was a very long time ago. But it, it shaped my perspective and view about water safety. And when I joined the Fire and Rescue Service, I was conscious that we were doing some really great work, fire kills and prevention work with, with fire safety and reducing the number of incidents and, and therefore reducing the risk to life. An accident and injury. And we were also doing some cracking work with road safety, reducing the number of accidents on the road in partnership with police and road safety advocates, etc. Water safety was a bit of a grey area for fire and rescue, and I'm talking nationally. It didn't fe- feature as one of our statutory influences. But what we were seeing was more and more incidents um, that we were being called to that were related to water. You know, whether you go to you know large flooding incidents or whether it's just a dog in the lake or a kid in the lake or a something, but relating to water. And what really, I suppose, kick-started me into ac- action was an incident. We, we were doing some good work, I should just add, with, with water response, you know, training swift water rescue teams, equipping firefighters to be able to respond with the right equipment, guidance, etc. But we weren't doing anything about preventing. And I was the deputy chief in Northamptonshire Fire and Rescue Service um, for for quite a few years. And during my tenure there, we had um, one of those incidents that will be, everybody's got one, an emergency service that will be forever and indelibly marked on my brain to the point I can remember the day. I can remember the conversations um, even now. And that was quite a long time ago. It was back in... uh, December 2009 that the incident occurred and um, you know without over dramatizing it you know um, two men lost their lives we were heavily criticized as a service about our response unjustifiably but there's still people two people died and it was it was an incident that consumed my time for about two years and I'm talking not you know it occurred and then we had the inquest and then dealing with the impact that had on our staff and, and one of our crew managers in particular, and then dealing with the press and all that sort of stuff that emerged afterwards. Yeah, it was about two years worth of work. And during that time, I approached Mark Ashin, who's in Cheshire. And at the time, he was head of prevention for the National Fire Chiefs Council. 
And I said, Mark, I I truly believe we we need to pull together some NFCC work, you know, sector led work on water prevention, on water safety, drowning prevention. And we need to engage with partners in exactly the way we've done with fire and road. And um, I remember Mark saying to me, that's a very good point, Dawn. It sounds like you're volunteering. (laughs) Which you must have expected was going to be the case. Which I must have expected. But I I suppose I then sort of went, God, am I, you know, given where I'm at with this and what I'm involved in now, can can I do it justice? Have I got the time, the capacity, even the brain space? But so you, you asked, what do you do about it? Well, my first reaction to that was was my reaction to everything. I need to find out more. I need to research. I need to talk to partners that are engaged with this. I need to understand what's happening in the UK. I need to, you know, collate some some statistics. Um, so I approached ROSPA, the Royal Society for Protection of Accidents, who were doing some some work. And who'd in 2009, actually, coincidentally, they'd started publishing something called the Wade Report, W-A-I-D, Water Accident Incident Database, because they'd started collating data from around UK. And I thought that's that was a really useful starting point. Mind it was only fatalities. So I I spoke to David Walker, who's the head of leisure and water safety at that time in Rosper, and I said, tell me what's happening. Uh, help me understand, because... NFCC, the National Fire Chiefs Council, are prepared to come to the table, but we don't know how best to help at the moment. And we also don't know what we can do because there's no money, there's no funding, there's no statutory obligation. We just know something needs doing. So that's how it started. Um, It's been hard work. But I guess showing interest is a starting point, isn't it, Adam? Because, you know, because of that, I was invited to attend the National Water Safety Forum. I was invited to get involved in writing the UK Drowning Prevention Strategy and got to know the major organisations and the players that are involved in change and influence. And that helped me then bring that back into our own sector. Um, We developed, uh, I think 2013 was the first year, we developed um, a campaign called Be Water Aware in NFCC and developed guidance toolkits um, you know, a brand, frankly, for farm rescue services to use. It's now the busiest campaign week in the whole of the National Fire Chiefs Council campaign calendars. Um, and that's because of partnership mm-hmm. engagement, to be honest. You know, Fire Service, Coast Guard, RNLI, Royal Life Saving Society, Lifeguards, everybody gets involved. And, and that's led to the broader national campaign uh, and branding of respect the water and and over the last 10 years we've reduced accidental drownings from around the sort of four 500 mark down to you know 200 odd a year um, there's still an awful lot of work to do uh, to hit the target but we've also seen societal change and influence has also uh, really unfortunately seen the number of suicides in water going up so you know, there's still a job of work to do and, and certainly, you know, it feels like one of those that you've you don't stop because you're educating the next generation all the time. Oh, of course, of course, and and you know, pro- progress takes takes time. I mean, you know, over the, over that period of kind of looking at halving, that's that's incredible achievement. Um, you know, you must in, in reflection, you must be incredibly proud that, or you know, that you you were the person who went and thought, I'm, I'm I've seen this. Okay, maybe things aren't being done as much as possible, but. I want to get it started and and 
whether you're you know as as involved with it now as you may have been at the, at the beginning it's the spark that started off something that's actually had a real impact on on people which is which is brilliant it needed doing and i think the the thing was i didn't just go out and say this needs doing why don't we get it done it was the work i had to do in advance to to write the compelling case it wasn't just an opinion this is this was at the time you know it well if you looked at it we were seeing 400 accidental drownings a, a year in the uk and we were investing shed loads of dosh into less than half of that in terms of fire deaths obviously that's our raison d'etre but if we if we're really truly interested in community risk and community safety you can't ignore the thing that nobody's doing nothing about can you and picking up on the point there where it, you know, it wasn't just a case of you know oh, this is hearsay i think there's a problem there's a problem here i think we should do something about it which you know can be easily challenged someone saying well okay that's fine but show me tell me prove it prove it to me that that is a that's an issue. I think that's a really important thing for people to, to often recognise. I mean, you know, I very much use the term you know, the business case, but that that initial part of it where you know, whatever almost whatever problem that you need to deal with, where you need to go and do that bit of digging and, and really understand what that problem looks like. So that if you actually want to influence change, it's well, okay, I might not be the person who can make the decision on that, but here's here's what it is and, you know, we can do something about it or or not. But are you comfortable in not doing something That's about exactly this? That's exactly right. I think the other thing for us was there were lots of people doing really good work, but you know, with the uniform services, with emergency services, comes a bit of clout, a bit of influence. So, you know, bringing that to the table helps partners. You just be careful, don't put your big boots on. But you know, using that influence into the LGA with the local government association. You, is something that we can we can add we can add value we can't we don't want to take over but we want to add value so really understanding what how you add value is important and I, I'd also like to just pay credit if I might to um, Dave Etheridge because one of ex chief of, of of Oxfordshire he was leading on road safety at the time when this was all developing and I went and spent I went and had lunch with Dave and sat down and I went what did you do Dave to move road safety prevention from like there mm-hmm. to there. What what did you do? What can I copy? <laughs> Plagiarism. Yeah. So you know, that was really useful. Confirmed some things in my head, but also gave me other ideas. So you know, look at look at comparators and see why they've worked and use the same you know principles. And and I, and I love that because that's really what I want you know from this from this podcast series is that for everybody to be able to listen to, um, you know, what's worked really well for for you. So. Yeah, let's just, let's just copy it. Why 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 reinvent the mm. reinvent the wheel? You know, we're we're unique in be, in the ability to be able to learn from the experience of others, but we're also remarkable for yeah. at times our disinclination disinclination to do so. And pay credit for it, Adam, because you know actually yeah. the RNLI, their success of their respect the water campaign, they will absolutely say they learnt a lot from the fire kills campaign, uh, and they'll say it openly. So yeah, we'll give them credit. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing. And it's true for me as a leader in the emergency services is think about your stakeholders differently. So it's easy for, you know, for me to think about because I I now chair the National Water Safety Forum. So I could just, you know, get the get ROSPA, RNLI, the Royal Life Saving Society, the Canals and Rivers Trust, 
Coast Guard Authority, you know, all those agencies around the table uh, and sort everything. But but we can't. So we are a cohort, a forum of the willing trying to tackle an issue. We need to draw in expertise. So, you know, for the issue on suicides, we absolutely need to engage with Professor Appleby, you know, Manchester University, health, etc. For how we change and influence behaviour, we have engaged heavily with families, families who have lost loved ones to drowning, to really hear the family voice and to use that to play back out through some of our campaigning messaging. Hugely powerful. And, you know, we, but, but a real responsibility because when you're engaging with families that have lost somebody, road traffic, collision, fire, water, whatever, every time, and, and, and they're passionate campaigners, they absolutely are, but every time they retell that story, every time you talk to them about it, they are going through that emotional, personal um, you know, loss again. And that's mm-hmm. really hard. So I always talk about looking after the responders yeah, looking after our staff, um, our staff's mental health because of what they face. But the same is true with families. So, yeah, really think about your stakeholders carefully when you're, you know, you're wanting to to engage with and utilise their voice. There is an implication for them. Uh, great. And uh, I suppose last last question on this kind of series. We, you mentioned um earlier about net networking um so where you, where you are now in your in your current world your your network will be very very vast do you find now that having that network and being able to you know pull in various different people various different organizations how does that actually impact on you and what you're trying to achieve both from if you think like from, from the water prevention uh, drowning prevention work that you've done but also in your role as um as chief fire officer how does that actually you know help you to get what you want done done so i think it's 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 difficult to quantify but i will try and verbalize generally and then perhaps give you an example so your networks you have to invest in you don't just join and then it all happens around you you know no. you have to engage with it you have to share i can't tell you how many podcasts i've done in my life but there's a fair few of them <laughs> for different subject matters and and it's not only it's the take so what you draw from it so I, i'm a, f- a faculty member for the good governance institute and you know, that has given me some absolutely fantastic contacts out there that helped me deliver things differently in my own service and and I'll talk for a moment about neurodiversity so I'm a neurodiverse ally personal experience professional experience combination of the two you know people always talk in the farm rescue service about us being inclusive and the workforce being inclusive and they'll focus in on what I call scene difference so they'll you know how many women have you got how many black and minority ethnic firefighters have you got they might even go as deep as you know how many lgbt firefighters have you got maybe they don't often ask how many neurodiverse firefighters have you got okay well guess what a lot the population for neurodiversity in the uk is around 20 percent. i reckon ours is higher and the way reason i use the term i reckon because a lot of people don't want to declare it and a lot of people haven't been diagnosed and they don't know it but once you understand neurodiversity and you you get involved in it you start to spot traits behavioral traits so it's quite high in our sector i'll leave it there i needed to do something about that because organizationally you can't look after a workforce that you don't know and understand and and you don't 
know how to help them. That's not that's not great. And back in the day, we used to think we were great as organisations if we did an EQIA and spotted something that would, you know, we needed to change in policy. And we did it for that person or that cohort. I've learned that that can be really divisive. Don't ask the woman to always speak on International Women's Day. Don't always ask the LGBT person <laughs> to lead the Pride campaign. Do you know, it's just... yeah. It's just tokenism. You need organisational understanding and organisational action. And with neurodiversity, I thought, yeah, I need to tap into that network. I need to see what other organisations have done outside of FAR because there was nowhere to look in FAR, frankly. And mm-hmm. um, I need to work out how we can approach this and how we can influence change. Um, and alongside Kent Farm Rescue Service, who, who've done some cracking work, um, we wrote the equality and access statement for neurodiversity. And it's not just about how we support our workforce to be different in the workplace and to, you know, to, to um, be themselves. But it's also how do you address the issues at an incident ground when you've got an, a neurodiverse person who's you know, on the autism spectrum, who's scared of loud noises, going to react badly in an emergency situation that is you know, not stable, etc. How do you... Um, make that better how do you appreciate what's likely to happen the fact that the, you know an autistic child will probably go and hide under their bed and not walk out of the house not with the rest of the family out, and yeah. all that sort of stuff yeah. you you know there's a, an awareness raising thing but the network absolutely gave me insight tools um knowledge to be able to think back uh, come and bring it back to far and go and to nfcc and go this is what we need to do this is an approach that has got a proven track record elsewhere that will help us move it forward. So there you go, network power. But I also like what you, what you said there about the, the networking. It's it's you kind of get out of it, but you've also got to put, you've very much got to put into it. And, you know, that is, you know, going, attending meetings, you know, putting the effort in, um, you know, let's say being around to do, give a talk, give a podcast. But, you know, in both raising your own profile so people know who who you are but then being able to know where those people are who you can pull in because that you know the the challenge that you just described there is fascinating and you know again it's i suppose we touched on it earlier when we were thinking about people risk you know you're you've got all these situations that you need to go and and deal with but but the one thing you don't necessarily know until you get there is what what people you're going to be dealing with and you know when you're you know when you're trying to to help people uh, and also you know both keep your keep your your people safe you know understanding that diversity is really really important and but you know i would imagine under the the operational pressure that you have trying to dynamically understand what's going on with the situation the hazards that you're facing and also take into consideration the people at the same time that's you know that's no no easy thing to do and you sometimes you can't but but at least if the knowledge is there and i i think it makes people more uh, you know, astute, more aware. Uh, the other thing it does is it allows us and enables us to shape our prevention work. So we've run a campaign. Uh, uh, it's actually an educational program called Safety in Action for quite a lot of years. It's award-winning. Prosper awarded. Excellent. Enterprise. Yeah, fantastic. I can't claim credit. It was here before I came. But <laughs> um, I'd like to. It's fantastic. But we were delivering it to schools. Thinking through the neurodiverse lens made us make inquiries about how many children are home educated because they've been unable to secure an appropriate SEND placement we were shocked we were shocked and 
what it made us really think about was we are not giving safety in action to those children and they need it and their families need it because actually there is a there's a disability and a vulnerability there i'm not saying that you know they'll always be the ones that are victims of fire but we what we've done is adapted our safety in action program and um, we now make a session available to home educated children uh, and they can bring their parents or they can bring their carer or if they're in special education you know we we and it's creative it's doing it's visual it's not a lecture it's not a classroom it's experience and visual and you know that's because we've done that work we've changed how we deliver the prevention work no that's that's excellent i think you know i still prefer curious over nosy um yeah it seems to be that's kind of a theme coming through what you've what you've talked about you know you're you're looking and seeing seeing what's going on and just asking the question you know what be inquisitive can we do this yeah can we do this can we do this differently yeah yeah no i i i fully agree with you and i you know i'd like people to take that away from from this is you know don't don't be okay with the status quo you know challenge ask questions be curious and yeah that's how things will change sometimes because that change was planned or sometimes we'll we'll stumble across things that we didn't expect but you know there's some really positive you know it has some really positive outcomes here that you've you've shared with us that's been 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 great so yeah and sometimes it brings about something that is really lovely you know you get that letter from the kid that's come to one of those sessions and they've never been to one before and they've just loved engaging with our stuff and that kind of warms your heart a bit um and sometimes it produces, you know, it produces awards which actually recognise the work that our staff have done. And we won the IESE Gold Award for Data Insights last year. We've been nominated and shortlisted again this year for a different project. And we've just been nominated um, for Inclusive Employer of the Year through the Neurodiversity Network. Um, those are nice things, but they are because of the work my staff have done. Um, and so you know, people will say, well, how do you reward staff? Do you give them a promotion or do you give them money or do you give them... Actually, if you're more intrinsic, you know, you recognise what they've done to make a difference. Mm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And it's, you know, when you look at whether you win the re- win the award or not, what you've done is got, got a group of people together to tackle something that's had had impact. And if people understand what the impact that they've that they've had and everybody plays their their part you know that's that, yeah. that's fantastic and it's you know when you think you know it's when you get to re- reflect on your on your career and the things that you've been uh you've been a part of and at times that you might have been only a small part of it sometimes you might have been a really big part of it but it's knowing that you've that you've made a difference and I think you know we often ask ourselves what you know what do we what are we supposed to do in the time that we've got um whilst we're we're, we're having to work and I think you know making a difference is, is is really important uh, and if we can you know even make a small difference that's yeah, that's uh, it leaves a legacy, and that's a fantastic thing about our sector. People will retire knowing when that kind of time <laughs> comes. Um, knowing, <laughs> I'm not a countdown yet, but knowing that they have, they've contributed in some way to to safety, to somebody feeling better, or to somebody having a joyful experience. You know, at, at one of the safety action events, or a station open day, or whatever. They know they will have done some of that in their careers. Okay, so so last question then before we, we, we wrap up. Then I'm really interested in knowing then why would you encourage somebody to work in your your industry? What is it about 
yeah the fire and rescue service that is so fulfilling so the fire and rescue service is varied and people that join our service will have different motivations some want to be heroes uh, they enjoy the buzz the thrill the adrenaline rush of a large incident uh, of, of getting in there and, and helping sort out something that could be somebody's you know worst day of their life frankly um, some really enjoy the public engagement you know excitement on a kiddie's face when they've turned up and got on a fire engine or dressed up as a firefighter or whatever um, some really enjoy the detail of you know the uh, analysis the work behind the scenes work uh, and the plethora of jobs is huge you know we we employ communicators financiers um, health and safety specialists hr people you know any other like any other organization does but but they're all behind the scenes you know chugging away and getting it done the the thing that I know that everybody, everybody that has worked um, in fire and rescue service can say, whether they leave or retire or whatever, is that they will have contributed to making a difference. They absolutely will have. And whether that's about yeah making a kiddie's day because they've turned up at their school or whether it's about putting out a house fire or helping them, you know, when they've had a road traffic collision or you know, it might not be an incident. People will say to me sometimes, oh, I've uh, a fire and rescue service are fantastic, but I've never used them. And I will say, really, have you got a child at school? Yes, we've been to every school in this county every year uh, and done a session for your kids. Um, you, you see, have you been able to get to work on time? Oh, yeah, that's because we moved that road traffic collision out the way with police and able, were able to facilitate you to have safe roads to drive on. Everybody uses the Farm Rescue Service, even if they haven't used us at their home address. We are there. And, and prevention is such an important part of our job. So people perhaps think about it as we've not used you because we haven't had an emergency. But all of the prevention work that goes on behind the scenes with education and improving home safety and all that sort of stuff, smoke detectors, you know, all, all that stuff is, is part of what we do. I think the other thing as I reflect on you know, my career, and I've done 17 years so far, not quite finished yet. Um, my husband was in for 38 years uh, and so had a, you know, a, a longer career and, and a, a very different time. He's been retired for a few years now. But both of us know, as we reflect back over all of those years, there's so much variety. You know, one day you can be doing this or influencing a government policy or, or, or dealing with, you know, a political meeting or writing a, a new strategy the next day you're attending a school for a safety event or talking to a group of young adults about you know road safety or you know you're, you're in your uniform and and you know sorting out a flooding incident or you know a, a large-scale fire at a, a, a recycling center unfortunately um, but the variety is fantastic so very often when I see new joiners and new starters into the sector and whether that's firefighters or other members of staff i will often say to them at the end of my introduction to them and getting to know who they are you have you have just joined the best job in the world never 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 take it for granted you know you're wearing a uniform you you will be trusted by the public to do the very best for them in their worst moment we're proud yeah Love that. Excellent. Okay, well, I think that's that's a really good point to um, 
yeah, to finish on. So yeah, thank you very much for, for joining me um, this morning to, uh, to talk through. It's been, uh, it's been brilliant. Thanks so much for listening to Risk Sleep Repeat. If you'd like to appear on the show, if there's a topic you'd like to discuss, or if you want to let us know your thoughts, please do so using the hashtag risksleeprepeat or get in touch via our website at praxis42.com.